This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Gishpulova-Said. I'm a host of New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Tatiana Zhurzhenko, one of the editors of War and Memory in Russia, Ukraine and Belarus, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2017. Tatiana Zhurzhenko has a PhD in social philosophy. In 2002, Tatiana Zhurzhenko moved to Vienna as Lisa Meitner Fellow at the Institute for East European History, University of Vienna, where she conducted research on the identities and discourses in the Ukrainian-Russian borderlands. Tatiana Zhurzhenko teaches on the Eastern European politics at the University of Vienna. She's also the author of Borderlands into Bordered Lands, Geopolitics of Identity in Post-Soviet Ukraine, published in 2010. This book was awarded with the Best Book Prize uh, 2010 of the American Association for Ukrainian Studies and with the Bronze Award of the Association for Borderland Studies in 2012. Hello, Tatiana. Hello, Natalia. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I'm really intrigued by this publication which appeared a few years ago, and I'm very happy that we will have this chance to discuss it today. So the title, War and Memory in Russia, Ukraine and Belarus, may sound uh, ambiguous and unclear, especially for those outside of the former Soviet Union. It's not quite clear what war is referred to. Uh, But uh, on the other hand, everybody who has some sort of memory of the Soviet Union will know almost immediately that the Second World War is meant here. The name of the book also appears symbolic, the ongoing military conflict between Russia and Ukraine, and now the conflict in Belarus, which was not happening when the volume appeared. Would you guide us through the idea of the volume and through the decision to focus on the three countries? Thank you, Natalia, and thank you for your invitation. I'm very happy um, to talk with you about um, this book, which I co-edited together with my colleagues um, from the Alexander Institute in Helsinki, Marco Kangaspura and Yusi Lassila, and also with um, another colleague. Um, she is now working at the University of Melbourne in Australia, uh, Julie Feder, uh, and I will later explain how we all somehow <laughs> came came together to to work on this book. Uh, but I wanted to start with the title. Indeed, the title uh, uh, might seem um, a bit laconic, maybe, <laughs> and not informative enough. But um, nowadays, um, 
um, the the editors are not the only ones responsible for the title. You know, the, the publisher uh, has um, has a say also concerning the title. So in the end, it was a compromise uh, because the publisher wanted it short and to have like keywords in the title. So we ended up with uh, memory and war, war and memory. Uh, and, and the three countries we are focusing on. But uh, initially the title was supposed to be something like renarrating heroism, making sense of suffering, Mem- memories of World War II in Russia, Ukraine and Belarus. So it was more, in a way, more informative. <clears throat> uh, and uh, the idea of the book uh, emerged uh, from from a small conference we had we held uh, at the Alexander Institute in Helsinki um, because Alexander Institute was uh, a partner in the project called Memory at War: Cultural Dynamics in Poland, Russia, and Ukraine. And this project was um, um, hosted by Cambridge and led by Alexander Edkind. And actually. Uh, my colleagues who are involved in memory studies uh, in in our region, they of course uh, know about this project because it was one of the kind of milestones in in the development of the field. And I was uh, lucky to be involved um, in one of the branches of this project, uh, which was um, settled in in Helsinki. And um, our part of the project focused on uh, uh, media narratives and actually on Russia uh, more than on other countries, which is understandable for the Alexander Institute because Russia is the primary focus. So for me, it was also an interesting experience to switch from Ukraine to Russia and to be able to compare uh, these two countries and the dynamics of memory politics, especially on the local level. Um, so this is how the the idea of the book emerged. We, um, I think it was in autumn 2012, we had a, um, under the title Narratives of Suffering, I guess, and, and uh, several very interesting papers. And as always, then we, we discussed how to make it into a special issue or a book. Um, and uh, uh, we had uh, papers on Russia, we had papers on Ukraine, we actually also had papers on some other post-Soviet countries, I think it was Estonia, but when we started to think about how to make it a book, we realized that we need um, we need a focus, we need uh, something which would make this book special, and we decided actually to focus on uh, Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus as a as three post-Soviet uh, states, which used to be the core of the uh, the East Slavic core of the Soviet Union, and um, uh, having shared in the past like the Soviet commemorative culture. Uh, the Soviet kind of um, framework of remembering about uh, the Great Patriotic War, and our idea was to to try to trace uh, this diverging passes of of um, 
these three countries in terms of of their attitudes to to um, the memory of Second World War and to to the interpretation of of uh, this event, but also transformation of um, of, of these commemorative cultures. So um, that's why we um, decided to focus on this on these three countries and to make our volume more coherent and also different from other collective volumes. And uh, this was uh, basically the last year before uh, the Euromaidan. This was the last year before the annexation of Crimea when we started to work on this. And we invited um, other people to contribute, uh, renowned scholars as well as younger authors who just finished their dissertations. Um, and then uh, the year 2014 was uh, a kind of shock <laughs> for, I think, for, for all of us. And uh, it also affected our, our work because uh, it totally changed the context uh, of, of, uh, of the debate, right? Uh, the memory of the Second World War uh, became uh, not only politicized, but what we call it in the introduction, weaponized. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was really used uh, to to mobilize, uh, um, uh, for example, in Ukraine to mobilize uh, um, the the pro-Russian sentiment, and it was used to undermine the legitimacy of the Ukrainian state, and it was. Um, it it has become not just contested but really performed on the streets as as uh, somehow the, the the opposing sides used it as to to frame to frame the the ongoing conflict in terms of fascism anti-fascism uh, and and uh, uh, notions like that yeah so uh it was it it has become difficult <laughs> to to continue with with our project and um, the annexation of Crimea and then later the decommunization laws in Ukraine, um, as I said, have, uh, have changed the context so that um, some chapters needed to be updated and we needed to think how we put this all together in this new post. 2014 context. Um, But still, I think three underlying ideas we had in mind from the very beginning, uh, they they, uh, were central, still central for us. And this is to look not only on the official discourses and official memory politics, but also on grassroots initiatives and and, new communities of memory, uh, not only political actors, but also societal actors involved in memory politics, um, such as, for example, we, we, we have chapters on uh, um, former Osterbeiter uh, in, in Ukraine. We have chapters on uh, uh, Afghanistan war veterans in Belarus. We have a, uh, we have a chapter on... Uh, uh, children of war um, in Russia. Um, so new communities of memory which uh, emerged recently, right? 
Um, so this was one one um, intention to um, to to um, to look at at also at local commemorative cultures to to approach various dimensions of of our topic. Uh, and the second one was uh, to reflect on this generational shift, which is currently happening in in uh, in uh, in the field of collective memory in the post-Soviet states, the transition from communicative to cultural memory, as far as the Second World War is concerned. So. Um, this uh, notions of communicative memory and cultural memory goes back to Jan and Elida Asman, uh, famous uh, German cultural um, cultural scientists and and historians, and um, it's it's uh, it's a kind of um, obvious uh, thought. I think that that. Uh, the last witnesses, people who experienced um, uh, the Second World War directly as soldiers, as uh, children, as witnesses, as um, um, people who, who, who um, uh, still remember these events from their personal experience, they are getting older and they are slowly... Uh, um, living right and and uh, this of course affects very much the way how post-soviet societies and not only post-soviet societies i think it concerns also of course um uh, other countries um how they uh, conceptualize the the world war ii and how how the memory um uh, of this event is recodified and and uh, re-narrated, uh, becoming part of the cultural canon and not just kind of biographic experience. Uh, so we um, we try to keep this in mind uh, when we um, uh, worked on this book, and of course. Uh, Probably the third organizing idea, the third uh, intention behind this project was to trace these divergent trajectories of the three post-Soviet countries, very different post-Soviet countries, Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus, um, um, and to, um, to try to reflect on how the common uh, Soviet commemorative culture is being uh, transformed adjusted to the new political agenda in each particular case. Um, so uh, could you could we spend some time identifying the specificities of memory politics regarding the Second World War in these three countries? What are the main instances that make the memory of the Second World War in the three countries similar and different, as um, you uh, mentioned a little bit like in your um, final statement uh, when responding to the first question? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so this is of course uh, a big question, and I will be—I don't know if my answer is going to be complete, but I would probably start with the uh, with uh, saying that that actually, even in the Soviet era, despite 
uh, the official Soviet canon, which was uh, imposed um, on the Soviet society uh, from uh, from above. Uh, there was uh, there were there were significant differences how collective memory uh, um, collective memory uh, functioned in in Ukraine in Russia and in Belarus and uh, we know that this uh, in Belarus for example the, the myth of a partisan republic uh, was uh, shaped during the Soviet decades, yeah, the 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 idea that the the uh, this partisan resistance, partisan movement, was um, uh, so widespread in Belarus, so that they could claim this as part as as their uh, collective identity, right? And uh, Vladislav Grinevich wrote long time ago about on on how actually the collective memory of Second World War in Ukraine was rather different from from Russia due to many facts, due to, of course, to the different um, experience that the the population of Western Ukraine had with the the Second World War, due to the fact that the whole Ukrainian territory was actually occupied um, and experienced enormous... uh, um, hardships and destruction and losses of population and and uh, destruction of the infrastructure and um, uh, due to the fact that basically the population the Ukrainian population to to some extent lived for two uh, or years or even longer after the under the the Nazi occupation yeah so this experience of being uh, on the occupied territory, uh, and so many other um, um, moments here, I think, are important. <clears throat> but of course, in the post-Soviet era, um, in the post-Soviet era, these uh, differences um, uh, became even more obvious, and this has to do, of course, with the trajectories of nation building, different trajectories. Uh, for example, Russia um, took this role uh, or uh, uh, represented itself as a successor of the the USSR, and of course as a as a successor of this legacy of great victory, um, which uh, in in the Ukrainian case. Uh, um, was one of the narratives in in Ukraine, but uh, it was contested by other uh, rather politically powerful narratives, right? Um, also, um, there have been differences in the political regimes which um, emerged in post-Soviet Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. In Ukraine, uh, we have much higher level of political competitiveness uh, and uh, so incentives actually um, for various political actors to instrumentalize competing narratives of uh, World War II, uh, which became especially 
visible from the end of the 90s probably and, and with the with the orange revolution but also during the the yanukovych pres- presidency so this uh, this kind of instrumentalization of um historical narratives instrumentalization of the the memory of the second world war became one of the political technologies used by different political forces and um unfortunately it had um this this um polarizing effect of this political technologies was destructive for for Ukraine and we came to realize it rather late that that uh that this uh, uh political strategies were uh, yeah so had negative consequences um and in belarus um belarus also positioned itself uh, as a successor of the belarusian uh, soviet socialist republic especially with lukashenko um becoming having become president of belarus yeah um and and um so the the political regime in in belarus um have been using the memory of the of the great patriotic war uh to 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 consolidate kind of to consolidate the belarusian society but also um to provide an ideological um background for 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 the for the post-Soviet Belarusian state, uh, but um, we can also see uh, today in Belarus um, that, that actually both the opposition, the protesters, and the regime are referring to the to the uh, concepts and and notions um, of of this historical narrative. We are referring to. Uh, to, to the partisan tradition, referring to the the uh, fighting fascists and resistance, and and uh, we saw the same actually in Ukraine uh, when both sides in 2014 uh, referred to the Great Patriotic War, not only not only the anti-Maidan protesters and the pro-Russian protesters uh, um, appropriated this narrative. Fighting on on the on the right side, but also the the pro-Ukrainian side referred to the victory in the Great Patriotic War to to claim this tradition and build a new narrative. Uh, actually, drawing these parallels and saying we we were uh, victorious in uh, 1945. And we are going to win again in in this war with Russia. So this was the um, the slogan, which, for example, the Ukrainian Institute of National Remembrance used um, in the first post-Maidan years to frame this, the uh, commemorations of the 9th of May in Ukraine. So both sides actually referred to this uh, to the to the symbolic resources of of this Soviet commemorative culture. Um, how would you describe the current memory politics in uh, Ukraine? Or what is prioritized? Is there any consistency? Is consistency an answer in general to the issues of uh, memory politics? 
Yeah, so um, again, it's um, it's a question where I don't even know to, where to start because <laughs> <laughs> because uh, uh, yeah. So after after the Euromaidan and with the in, in this uh, new like post Maidan Ukraine, one could talk about certain political line. Yeah, there was. Uh, the the Institute for National Remembrance uh, was very active in 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 shaping this this kind of new vision, and then there was this uh, decommunization laws, which um, <clears throat> introduced um, kind of new paradigm, right? And it was um, met with some criticism from. Uh, certain parts of, of the uh, Ukrainian society and politicum, uh, but still one could see about certain agenda and certain certain tendency, right? Um, uh, what what um, we can observe now, uh, I think I think there is no such um, kind of uh, unite, uh, unified vision or no such agenda that the new leadership, um, political leadership of Ukraine uh, would have, yeah? And the Institute of National Remembrance, uh, in my eyes, I'm not monitoring this uh, for a, um, a dialogue uh, rather than a kind of executive body, which this institute used to be uh, under Poroshenko, yeah? And... Um, uh, it, it's it's not. I think that they are imposing uh, anything uh, in as as the only vision, yeah, as the only uh, official narrative. Um, so for me, what what um, what we are we have been experiencing uh, during the last year or year and a half is more like depolitization and desecuritization of uh, the discourse of memory, which is probably not so bad <laughs> uh, because it, it gives some um, space, I think, for... Um, for, for, for dialogue and for... Uh, deliberation yeah something which was um, uh, rather difficult in in uh, in the years before again some segments of the Ukrainian society especially uh, among the the uh, uh, like the activists the people who uh, have been very much involved in in um, yeah in in democratic reforms in Ukraine in in transformation processes. Uh, this kind of this can be perceived as a kind of vacuum, maybe that the the uh, authorities don't know what they want. But um, on the other hand, I think it gives like some space to breathe and to to. To discuss, and it gives some some space for for local initiatives, for kind of decentralized politics of memory, which 
is probably something which is a good thing for for the Ukrainian society right now. Um, so mm-hmm. this is where I would probably stop. Mm-hmm. So uh, keeping in mind uh, memory politics, how can the Donbas and Crimea be positioned in the collective memorial um, space? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And maybe what uh, uh, memory politics should be implemented in order to reintegrate uh, these two occupied um, geographical bodies uh, in the mm. Ukrainian territory? Uh, huh. uh, yeah, I, I think uh, uh, the Donbass and Crimea are two different regions in this sense, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, because um, I don't think Crimea can be reintegrated by means of memory politics. It's it's a territory uh, which is now uh, part of the other state, right, with all political institutions, um, state institutions of the Russian Federation, uh, now working to integrate Crimea in in in, in Russia, right? And um, it's very little that Ukraine do um, in this respect uh, somehow to to offer kind of alternative uh, without being able to be present. Yeah, there. So I I think what what concerns Crimea, I think it's very important that Crimea remains in our. Um, horizon of thinking and attention and and uh, um, discussions yeah that that it's not um, forgotten and it's um, it, we still consider it uh, a part of our imaginary space right <laughs> and um, but in terms in terms of um, politics i don't know what what um we can do to uh reintegrate crimea without uh yeah without challenging the the military power of russia right so uh donbass is different because uh donbass is still somehow uh is perceived as as a territory which one day can return, more return to Ukraine, yeah. And Donbas is is divided by the current conflict. So when we uh, talk about Donbas, we uh, mean actually both parts, yeah. The the part which is under control of Ukraine and the part which is not controlled by the Kiev government. Um, so uh, uh, Ukraine can do a lot on on the territory which is under the Ukrainian control. And I don't know if um, what 
uh, has been done before is is sufficient, yeah, because um, it's a very important issue how memory politics, which was uh, implemented in Ukraine after the Yevromaidan and especially the decommunization law, law the, uh, the legislation, the the uh, this kind of symbolic cleansing of the post-Soviet landscape, removing uh, communist monuments, renaming streets. Uh, it was, of course, um, not welcomed by everybody in in eastern Ukraine, and Donbass is a very special region in this respect. We know it, the, the, the local identity is very much draws on, on this Soviet Soviet legacy and the myth of the uh, of the um, uh, Donbass as a as a cradle of the proletarian um, culture and and uh, economic achievements of Soviet Ukraine, right? So it's it's uh, it has been rather controversial and uh, in 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 terms of reintegrating Ukraine. Yeah. On the other hand, I think it's uh, it's very important that there is this uh, uh, Ukraine-controlled part of Donbass experienced all these changes with the rest of Ukraine yeah? and and um, went through this uh, sometimes pa- painful but I think still important transformations and uh, still I think what is really needed is is uh, more like politics of focusing on local initiatives, on uh, grassroots initiatives, uh, on kind of decentralized memory politics involving, uh, I think, local communities in the, uh, this kind of everyday um, work and uh, reimagining reimagining the, this territory and reinventing, renarrating the, uh, the, the, the territory, the, the identity of this territory, right? Uh, and I think there is still a lot to do in this respect. Um, uh, so you uh, teach on the Eastern European politics at the University of Vienna. And um, would you share um, your experience with us? Would you share with us what your students are interested in, in terms of Eastern European politics? Um, yeah, so I mm, uh, I have been teaching uh, different courses for example, I'm teaching now a course, um, a lecture course on nationalism after communism, which covers Eastern Europe and the post-Soviet space, and addresses actually the, this all this um, complexity of issues from nation building to ethnic conflicts and and the rise of uh, new nationalism, for example, in East Central Europe. Um, but I have been also teaching for many years courses on memory politics and and um, memory wars and uh, uh, in in Eastern Europe, right? Uh, but um, last semester I have been teaching uh, a course on memory wars, reconciliation, and uh, apology and reconciliation in international relations. So I was focusing on approaches in political science which uh, which are uh, 
used in, in uh, international politics and international relations. So, for example, why some states apologize for the former atrocities and wrongdoings and others are not. Why some countries manage to reconcile and others fail. Um, and why in, in some cases, for example, the most recent case is that uh, this memory war between Russia and Poland, which we could observe uh, last year, uh, uh, why some countries are uh, indulging in, in such mnemonic battles to the extent that, that uh, their presidents start kind of <laughs> writing mm -hmm. historical articles and, and uh, defending uh, what they think is historical truths. Yeah? Uh, so these are interesting, interesting topics. And I, um, from, from my experience, uh, students uh, are very interested in these topics, not only Austrian students. We have a lot of Erasmus students at the University of Vienna. We have students from um, Eastern Europe. We have... Um, also, but also from from Western Europe, from Scandinavia. So, and and I mostly teach in English. Uh, that's why we have. Uh, I also have like a lot of international students, and it's always exciting to discuss such topics in in a multicultural environment, in a multinational environment, because um yeah they can bring their their mm -hmm. examples and uh, we can see basically that that um, what we think is going to be like uh eastern european uh, phenomenon phenomenon this memory wars are to to are not not at all limited to eastern europe yeah we could see uh this eruption of, of mnemonic conflicts all over the world, like in, in the United States, it was a Black Lives Matters movement, which actually uh, questioned the legitimacy of, the, uh, of, of some historical monuments and even dis, dismantled some of them. Um, and this this is a um, uh, movement which had uh, echo in in also in Europe. We know that uh, some some statues of historical figures were desecrated or, or um, torn down in 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 the UK. But also here in Vienna, we had an. Um, right now kind of um, controversy, which is an old controversy, but it was uh, somehow uh, through these events, global kind of events uh, uh, came to the fore again. This is a controversy around the former mayor of Vienna, Karl Luegger, who is uh, considered the modernizer of Vienna. So the, the mayor of Vienna before the World War One. But because he uh, he is considered uh, to be anti-Semitic in his uh, statements and his uh, yeah, so he he is now uh, a questionable uh, again contested personality, and his monument in Vienna 
was uh, became a site of protests and and art uh, artistic interventions and 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 uh, uh, open conflicts and um, uh, I uh, was a witness of this um, escalation in the last weeks and one of the um, um, assignments that my students, for example, had this semester was to compare uh, contested monuments in various contexts, mm -hmm. starting from the from Eastern European context to to Austria to the United States, um, and I think we will find more similarities than we think if we look at at this uh, phenomenon in a comparative way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I usually conclude uh, our interviews with this question about my guest's recent uh, research projects. Um, would you uh, tell us just a few words about your recent project? Is it in any way connected with this volume that was published a few years ago? Um, I, I wrote uh, several um, several papers which somehow deal with various aspects of memory politics in in uh, in Ukraine, but not not only in Ukraine. So my my kind of long term interest is this uh, the the memory um, controversies about memory politics uh, between Ukraine and Russia, and I got interested in uh, one particular. Uh, historical figure, commemoration of this historical figure, who is the um, Prince Vladimir, Vladimir, yeah, <laughs> who who is considered both in Ukraine and in Russia as a kind of a, a founder of 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 uh, of the nation. Uh, so he, in a way, he unites and divides Ukrainians mm -hmm. and Russians. And uh, for me, it was interesting to see. How uh, actually we know that there is one monument to Vladimir uh, Vladimir in Kiev, which is from the uh, from the 19th century, from the imperial uh, times. Um, but uh, in the post-Soviet era, one could have monuments to Vladimir or Vladimir in Ukraine and in Russia. Yeah, it many of them are local projects others more like inspired from above we we remember the uh, this uh, initiative the project which was supported by president putin uh, this uh, some years ago a huge sta statue of vladimir was uh, erected in moscow in the near kremlin in the central part of moscow so i became interested in in this phenomenon kind of proliferation of Vladimir's mm -hmm. of Vladimir's in both countries mm -hmm. and also in the in the uh, religious um, uh, uses of the statues because um, they are interestingly enough they are on a kind of boundary between um, sacral and yeah so they, they are actually uh, what, what I wanted to say they are part of the public space, but they are also kind of sacral objects, yeah, but they are still not um, from the orthodox tradition po point of view, 
they are not the same as orthodox icons yeah and and uh, it's it's a kind of borderland phenomenon right so they are um in between and uh to some extent i think there's also kind of influence of soviet monumental art in in this tradition to erect statues of orthodox uh saints and which was not part of the uh, original orthodox tradition in our part of the world so i um this was one of these small projects which I worked on in recently and um, finished uh, my paper, which uh, I started uh, writing when I was doing research in Russia, namely in Murmansk and Veliki Novgorod. And I was interested in local, uh, uh, local uh, memorial cultures of uh, World War II, but also in the role that the local media is playing in in uh, uh, reproducing and reshaping these memorial cultures. And so this was uh, a project based on interviews with local journalists uh, in these two regions. And um, it's, it's actually very refreshing to see that the uh, local memory of the World War II in Russia is actually very uh, different in different regions and there is also a plurality of local actors and uh, communities of memory involved in these initiatives and and, uh, and on in, in local politics of memory shaping it from below yeah mm-hmm. um, and um, uh, yeah, so this this is uh, another paper which I was working on recently. Well, um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Tatiana. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation today. Uh, and thank you for this volume that um, nuances and details the memory politics strategies developed and uh, implemented in these three countries, uh, Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. And uh, your volume um, offers this uh, excellent opportunity to trace different trajectories that the three countries, which used to share some commemorative practices, now engage in with different practices and they illustrate these different practices. Uh, thank you so much, Tatiana. Uh, thank you, Natalia. Today I spoke with Tatiana Zhurzhenko, one of the editors of War and Memory in Russia, Ukraine and Belarus, published by uh, Palgrave Macmillan in 2017. Thank you for listening to New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. <laughs>